This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive, this is new, stickers or coffee mugs, depending on how much cold, hard cash you are willing to shell out. When I got to Norilsk, when I flew in, you know, everybody's walking off the plane and just kind of going about their business. And as soon as I walk off the plane, this, you know, this officer comes up to me and salutes and takes me off for like a brief kind of questioning in his little room. And they understand climate change is a growing problem. They understand it's not going away and that's only going to get worse, but they think they can mitigate it. It would be harder to do environmental story without that kind of nice political angle to it from Russia. It would be harder to get interest from editors. But at least climate change now exists in the Russian media and it almost didn't before. Howdy, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I talk to movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. On today's show, my guest is Alec Lun, a freelance journalist in Moscow with bylines in The Guardian, The Telegraph, Foreign Policy, The Nation, Politico. The list goes on. Alec frequently reports from Russia's Arctic, which is why I thought I was being so smart when I recorded an interview with him after a massive fuel spill in the region leaked about 20,000 tons of diesel into rivers and soil in Norilsk. I recorded that interview two weeks ago, and I'm only now getting it online. I don't have a good excuse for this. I was going to blame the delay on my daughter's 10th birthday party, but I just checked, and it looks like that was the week before this interview, so I've got nothing. Uh, but before I get to my interview with Alec, I want to note a few changes at my Patreon page. Here, I've got, hold on one second. Listen to this. Listen. I don't know. Can you hear that? Sounds like paper, right? Sounds like paper envelopes. Yes. It's the sound of a whole stack of envelopes containing the coasters I've been promising subscribers, supporters for months. They're finally ready to be mailed, and all I have to do is drop these bad boys in the mailbox. So if you don't get them in a week or so, it's because... I didn't put enough postage on them. Uh, they're, they're pretty light. I think one stamp should do it. I'm, I'm pr- dead serious. I really hope that one stamp's enough because I don't have that many stamps and I don't want to go to the post office and have them weigh them. You get the idea. Anyway, to prevent more of this baloney on my part, I've converted my Patreon system to auto-send merchandise to supporters from now on. Unfortunately, they don't have coaster merch uh, so the benefits are now a special The Russia Guy sticker for the $10 a month. And then I've added uh, something at $20 a month, an infinitely more useful coffee mug with also with the podcast logo. They both have the podcast logo on them. The catch is that you've got to pledge at these rates for three months before Patreon will actually send you this stuff. So I realize that a sticker isn't as good as a coaster. I mean, I don't, I, I'm, I don't, want, I don't know what I'm going to do with the sticker. I don't think they, they send me a sticker, so I don't have to worry about this. But, you know, it's still, a, I don't know, it's a sticker. You can figure out something to do with it. <laughs> you know, put it, put it on something. Anyway, I'm nearly out of the coasters that I've been, that's taken me so long to send out. So you guys, you, you, you follow. You know what I'm talking about. It's been a disaster getting me to try to mail these things out. So, you know, pop over to patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock and, and see if this new merch is worth it. I think the stickers are supposed to go out to everybody already pledging $10 a month, but I don't know if that's the case. So n- no promises there, but go to the website, have a look, see what it says. 
Now let's get back to Alec Loon, <laughs> my guest today, <laughs> who I, whom I've uh, very unfairly kept in editing limbo for two weeks now. How did you come to report so much on environmental issues in Russia? Because this seems like it's it seems I mean, it's, it's a huge issue, obviously, but also it seems like unusually kind of niche. It's one of the things that Russia shares in common with, obviously, every country in the world, but specifically, like, a lot of the major countries where presumably, you know, your readers are. And I wonder, like, how did you get into working on environmental stuff? I think it's just a matter of, you know, what your personal interests and passions are in. So I've always been interested in environmental stuff, um, camping, uh, rock climbing, you know, canoeing, I've, I've kind of fishing, I've, I've been interested in lots of outdoor activities my whole life. So it was just kind of natural to keep doing it. I think it's mostly a case of correspondence here, doing the politics and doing the Putin beats day to day. But then, um, you know, using a little bit of, you know, time that's a bit more free to go on and go out and uh, do some environmental reporting. And it's also a good excuse to see the country because there's so many places in Russia that I mean, if you were just doing strictly politics, you probably have no reason to go to Altai or Krasnoyarsk or, you know, Norilsk even. But if you're doing like an environmental topic, then suddenly a lot of those places do have environmental issues and great natural beauty that you can, uh, you can go report on. And I mean, of course, with, with that, it's always, uh, the charismatic megafauna that kind of drives a lot of stories. So. Luckily, Russia is blessed with things like polar bears, snow leopards, Persian leopards, Amur tigers, or you know Siberian tigers. So I mean, it's just there's just a abundance of riches as far as kind of these beautiful big creatures that um, you can kind of go and and use as a lens to report on a bigger environmental issue, be it climate change or pollution or or even just coexisting, you know, substance hunting and poaching for meat or fur among, you know, very poor people in the regions and so on and so forth. Has that that interest and that kind of the, that avenue for reporting, I imagine it's also exposed you to, like you, you mentioned that you know, growing up you're, you've had this kind of outdoor kind of lifestyle. Has that put you in contact with that kind of person or that, those kinds of people in Russia? Because I'd imagine that would also kind of separate you from the traditional kind of like foreign journalists cores that you're, if you're, if, do, you, do you get to do rock climbing and canoeing and stuff in Russia? And if so, are you meeting people that do that in Russia as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I do, I do a bit of rock climbing and, and I met a few people that way. Uh, I had a few adventures in the border zone near Finland. Not, not fun adventures, but adventures nonetheless uh, with, with the FSB um and yeah I, I think that was yeah when one of my russian climber friends was kind of shocked by that whole experience because he had obviously never had any problems and then he shows up there with an american and the fsb detained us but uh anyway yeah so no i have met a lot of really really great really interesting people in russia through that and, and also but you know but but more than that i think it's just going to these places because when you show up in you know surgut and you go out well, I guess Surgut's a bad example because I actually went with Greenpeace, so I got to introduce these reindeer herders through Greenpeace. But, like, I don't know, you show up in Norilsk, for instance, and, you know, you just end up meeting all these incredible people there, really interesting people, or, or Amderma in the, the, the Nenets Autonomous District. Yes, yeah, so when I was there, you know, you, I was, you know, one of the few Americans who had ever come to this uh, town of 300 people on the shores of the Arctic Ocean 
So of course I just met all these random people from these mechanics who were, who were drinking Samagone while they worked on their like Frankenstein Jeeps that they had welded together from different parts of cars and scrap metal to the, you know, the woman who ran the local store to the post office worker to the, to the, uh, acting mayor of the town to like a, to a woman who was really interesting who went out. She, for, for 30 years, she's been going out twice a day, every day to measure the ice thickness on the shores of the Arctic Ocean in Amdurma. So, you know, yeah, you, and you, you meet these incredible people just by showing up at these places, I think, more than anything else. Do they, do they typically roll out the red carpet for you as a, as somebody from so far away with, who speaks Russian or are they suspicious of you or does it sort of, does it vary? Yeah. It's probably a mix of all the, of, of, of those things. I mean, yeah. You know, this being Russia, there's a little bit less of the red carpet. You know, people tend to be a little bit standoffish until they kind of get a read on you. But that, you know, you know, so the first day nobody talks to you. Second day you start to maybe get a nod or two. The third day suddenly somebody invites you in for, you know, for a meal and some cognac or whatever. And then you kind of, you know, make a make a lifelong friend. That's I mean, that's I think, you know. You know this, you know, anybody who's spent time in Russia knows that kind of amazing kind of uh, hospitality that oh, that's unlocked at a certain point. So, yeah, but but also lots of suspicion. I mean, with, with getting to Omdurma, for instance, that was four months of, you know, documents. And I had to hire a guy up in Naryanmar to, like, ferry these papers back and forth with the, to the local FSB office and stuff. Um, buy the helicopter tickets because uh, they have like a subsidized helicopter flight along the coast. I mean, or Narilsk was five months of, you know, back and forth with all the paperwork, uh, you know, getting notarized, you know, going with these sheets of paper to get them notarized and then mailing them off to Narilsk or Krasnoyarsk. And yeah, I mean, and then, you know, and all that was, was worth, was worthless anyway until Narilsk Nickel decided that they wanted to show off how they were sh- closing down their copper factory and were, were going to become, so much more environmentally friendly. And then suddenly, finally, all my paperwork was done in like a week and my FSB permission was in order. It's, you know, magically all of a sudden, as soon as Nuggles Nickel was on board. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of suspicion, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. Um, I met, yeah, I remember when I, you know, I, when I got to Nuggles, when I flew in, you know, everybody's walking off the plane and just kind of going about their business. And as soon as I walk off the plane, this, you know, this officer comes up to me and salutes and takes me off for like a, brief kind of questioning in his little room and you know uh so yeah i mean there's there's a lot of suspicion as well and a lot of jokes about oh you're an american you must be a spy but uh you know that kind of joke that in russia is kind of a half joke uh especially after 2014 so in terms of all the permissions that was needed is that because you're going there to do journalism or would any american tourist need to go through that many loops just to go see something like that any american tourist would have to go through those loops um jump through those hoops because uh i mean the the border zone in russia i i don't i don't think anybody who hasn't been to russia and dealt with it uh realizes what an amorphous and ever growing kind of insatiable beast the border zone is. It's just, I mean, I cannot convey how much red tape is caused by the border zone. And the thing is, it's not, it's not always the, you know, it's supposed to be five kilometers some places, but, you know, it stretches up to 30 kilometers in other places. And then some cities are part of it. Some cities aren't part of it, even though they're in the border. It's just a huge, 
mess. What do you when you say the border zone? What do you mean exactly? Well, so there's, I mean, all around Russia, even the sea, even the you know the Arctic Sea coast or the coast of any body of water that counts as a an international border of Russia, and so at the very least five kilometers inland from that border, from that coast or from that land border is border zone. But like I mentioned, it gets, it gets much bigger, you know, places like Murmansk. When I was going from Murmansk to Kirkenes in Northern Norway across the Russian Norwegian border, I mean, though I got, I got briefly detained by the FSB there as well because the border was closed because it was past 9 PM. So I couldn't be going through the border. I was, I was therefore entering the border zone illegally. And so, yeah. And they told me that it's the border zone started in Z- after Zapalyarny, which is about 40 or 45 kilometers from the border. Anyway, so the point is the border zone is this archaic kind of Soviet understanding that there's a, that there's a, a, a kind of a cushion before the border of land that is restricted, even for Russians in many cases, and especially for foreigners. And so you can't be in there without permission unless you're actually planning, unless you're actually driving or crossing through a land border. But like I said, it's just a, it's just unbelievable. And, and the, the, the biggest problem is that the board, the border service who administers this whole thing has now been incorporated into the FSB. So that makes it even more kind of paranoid and bureaucratic and suspicious and just difficult to deal with. So yeah, anybody who, who works in the Arctic, has definitely run into the border zone problem in Russia. It's just like the the, the bane of of anybody's who works in the Arctic their existence. I definitely wanted to ask you about the the fuel spill in Narilsk because I know you've you know you've worked there. First general question like what what should foreigners know about this if they've seen it? Maybe they've seen a headline. Maybe they're unaware of it entirely. Like what happened and, and why would you say it's it, it's so important? Well, what happened was. Uh, 21,000 tons of diesel fuel leaked from this giant storage tank um, into the soil and then mostly into the, the water, the water, the nearby river, uh, which goes into a lake, which goes into another river, which eventually makes it to the Arctic Ocean. So I think two things are important. One is just this is a massive environmental catastrophe. I mean, this is 21,000 tons of diesel fuel. It's a lot of diesel fuel. And um, luckily, it's not in the open sea where it can kind of really get dispersed really widely but nonetheless i mean this local ecosystem these rivers have been extremely polluted and and we now know that the some of the carcinogenic compounds in that fuel have moved past the booms that they've set up to contain it and are moving through that water system which like i mentioned drains into the arctic ocean so i mean this is you know it's something like half the size of the exxon valdez but it's definitely you know comparable and it's the biggest spill in the arctic above the arctic circle that that I think anybody has seen. But I think secondly, and, and maybe more wor- worryingly, is the fact that this was caused, by all appearances, by permafrost thaw. In other words, this tank was standing on a platform. And I mean, one thing to know about Nerilsk and Yakutsk and pretty much any city in the whole, you know, northeastern two, two-thirds of Russia that are covered by permafrost is built on piles, which is, I mean, if you don't know... That term is basically stilts, right? Concrete, reinforced concrete stilts that are basically dug into the ground down deeper to the layer of soil that does not thaw in the spring and summertime. So in other words, the, 
you know, you see these old Russian houses in Siberia and they're always like buckling and warped and kind of, you know, lopsided. That's because that top layer of soil freezes and thaws every year and it doesn't thaw evenly. So therefore, whatever's standing on it ends up kind of swimming as the, as the Russians would say, right? Plava it. But, um, below that is permafrost that stays frozen year round. So the, so you shoot your piles down into that permafrost and then they're standing on basically solid ground even as the ground that's closer to the building is kind of uh, thawing and refreezing every year. And then the actual building is raised slightly above that kind of thawing, refreezing bit of ground called the active layer. It's slightly above that in the air, basically on stilts. So this is what, you know, this is actually a huge Soviet breakthrough was kind of large-scale engineering, you know, being able to build nine-story flat blocks on stilts, right? That was a huge Soviet breakthrough during World War II, right after World War II. Uh, that allowed cities like Norilsk to be built. And, um, you know, and of course, no other country in the world has ever built such, so massively in the Arctic, right? Or even in the far north, you know, Alaska, Canada, you'll see these little towns kind of, uh, up in the far north. And only in Russia do you see these cities, 200, 300,000 people, Murmansk, Norilsk, up in the far north. And so anyway, the, this platform with the giant tank of diesel fuel was standing on stilts, essentially, right? And one of those, according to Nerilsk Nickel, one of those stilts, um, the permafrost thawed beneath it and the, and the, the pile sank into the ground because the permafrost was thawing. And then one side of the tank sank and it basically burst and all this diesel fuel flowed out of it. So that's very concerning because that's obviously a climate change effect. Basically what's happening is that, that active layer that I mentioned that's thawing and refreezing every year is growing is growing bigger. And so suddenly piles that were down, you know, they were usually down about eight meters, eight to 12 meters deep. And that was enough because the active layer was only three, four, five meters deep. But now as the active layer keeps growing, now the active layer is six, seven, eight meters deep. Suddenly the entire pile, rather than the majority of the pile resting on and being firmed up in this solid permafrost, more and more of the pile is part of this active layer that's thawing and refreezing and degrading the concrete and more moisture is let in and the pile starts to sink into the ground and then you have problems like this. And so just to finish this thought, I mean, this is a, a huge problem financially because Russia has already said last year that they lose about, that they, that it costs them $2.3 billion in infrastructure damage each year. Permafrost thaw costs Russia $2.3 billion of infra, infrastructure damage each year. But more importantly, it's, um, it's a huge, environmental issue because as we know Russia is uh very actively developing uh gas extraction in Yamal Russia is very actively developing um oil extraction in Taimir all sorts of other projects across the Russian Arctic um that Putin and the Russian government are very heavily you know giving lots of tax breaks to and really promoting because because it's essentially because it's the short it's the easiest way to make the northern sea route a thing <laughs> is to have a bunch of oil and gas being brought by tankers across the northern sea route. Since the northern sea route is Putin's pet project, since, of course, we can't forget Russia's, you know, half their half their budget comes from oil and gas uh, revenues, you know, you have the government pushing for this oil and gas development in the far north in these permafrost areas. So, of course, it's a huge question. I mean, if, if you know, if it, even a tank of diesel fuel in the Rilsk isn't safe and can, you know, cause this huge environmental catastrophe. I mean, what happens at a major oil and gas installation where they have, you know, 
a huge similar tank of liquefied natural gas, let's say, waiting to be put onto a tanker. How does Russia reconcile the fact that it seems like, they, I mean, they, they definitely rely heavily on, you know, um, resource extraction and and oil and gas. So in that sense, they're presumably interested in, you know, being able to make as much money as they can off of those things. But at the same time, they seem possibly more exposed to climate change catastrophes than other countries that, you know, are also world players and so on. And so like, how have you seen them? I mean, how do they end up kind of, how do they play to both of those, those interests? Like they both, they both are very directly threatened by climate, the climate crisis, which, you know, this, this spill in Nadolsk is evidence of, but at the same time, they, you know, for the sake of their economy or their, their federal budget, they desperately need to continue pumping and extracting and selling how are th- th- these two things seem to be in conflict? Like, how are they negotiating that? Well, for a long time, they're ne- negotiating it by essentially denying the problem, refusing to recognize the problem, right? But uh, very recently, in the past couple of months, we've seen kind of a, a Volkswagen with Russia suddenly actually recognizing uh, climate change. I mean, uh, you won't necessarily hear them, you know, they'll still talk about, oh, it might be a natural cycle or, you know, it's not necessarily because of our oil and gas and, you know, the world's oil and gas extraction that this is happening. I mean, you, you won't hear that from them. But what happened in, uh, I believe it was November or December, was Russia ratified the Paris Accords, Paris Accord targets after, you know, what was that, four or five years of waiting on that. Suddenly it happened very quickly in Russia that they ratified that. And then in January, they released this national strategy for adapting to climate change. And this strategy kind of shows what their current thinking, I think, on it is. And that seems to be that they believe, they understand climate change is a growing problem. They understand it's not going away and that's only going to get worse, but they think they can mitigate it. So in this document, in this strategy, there was a lot of talk about studying both, uh, studying the, the potential risks of climate change and studying ways to adapt northern cities, northern industries to it. But then, interestingly enough, also studying the benefits of climate change. And there's two interesting things, I think, about this document. One is that, you know, it talks a pretty good game about adapting to climate change, but the funding is, is not, there's not, there's not much, there's not much about funding or about where the money's going to come from to do this adapting, right? And there's a couple lines in there that make it clear that the regions themselves are expected to do kind of the, take the mitigation measures, which, of course, anybody who studies Russia knows that's a problem because money tends to flow out of the regions into Moscow rather than, you know, there's a lot of poor regions in Russia and there's a lot of regions that you can see, you know, probably not spending, you know, I mean, we, 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 there's problems in Russia with regions just, you know, keeping their roads repaired. You know, I was in Kaluga region potholes. So if they can't even do the roads, it's hard to imagine that, you know, a lot of Russian regions are going to be going to be spending lots of money on uh, complicated kind of climate change adaptation programs. But also the second thing that's interesting is, yeah, that, that, that this idea that there are going to be benefits that are going to offset some of the consequences of climate change for Russia, which I think is also a bit, a bit misguided. What kind of benefits? Well, so like a big benefit that was talked about in the strategy document is that the growing zone is going to increase, right? the agricultural zone, Russia's agricultural zone is going to increase. As it gets warmer, um, you can grow crops farther and farther north and there's going to be more room for that. But I mean, I, I, it, I just think it sounds a little bit silly because, you know, Russia's never had a problem with 
with kind of land area. It doesn't necessarily need a lot of, you know, more, it's not like Russian farmers were just out of, out of land and there's, you know, now they're going to finally be able to expand northward. And secondly, okay, fine. Maybe you can grow crops a little bit further northward, but the crops that you're growing in Russia's breadbasket in the south are going to be more vulnerable to drought and wildfires and pestilence and all, you know, all sorts of other climate change effects. So I don't think it's going to be a net gain. I mean, sure, you might gain some some kind of poor, clayey soil in Siberia somewhere, but you're losing a bit of the, probably going to lose a bit of the yield from Russia's breadbasket, you know, the, the famous, the black earth of Russia, the Chormazum. So I don't think it's going to be a kind of a, I don't think that's going to compensate out at all in the end. Generally, how do you find that environmental issues are usually reported in, in Russia, either, you know, by foreign correspondents or and to, I don't know how much you follow it, but like the actual, the Russian press, because I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not a, I'm not at all an expert on environmental issues. And I, I know you know quite a bit about this. And so I'm wondering, like, when you read the local press, or when you read reporting on the, the issue by anybody, I guess, like, are, are you struck by, is it like, highly sophisticated? Is there a, a big demand for that kind of reporting? Or are you, are you often looking at stories and thinking like, oh, they, this is, a, this is a bad take? Like, what's your general reading of, of, of like the other reporting that's done on these issues? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a great lack of environmental reporting in the foreign press about Russia just because, um, so much air is taken up by the politics situation. I mean, everybody loves a good kind of criminology story and, and, you know, and that's important, you know, in, in Russia, probably more than many countries, the, the politics side of it is very important. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, I think a lot gets lost, you know, and, and, you know, you could complain about, you know, cultural reporting or, you know, uh, solutions, journalism, all this kind of stuff can, can maybe get lost a bit in this kind of focus on the high politics of Russia. So, yeah, I mean, you, we could definitely see a lot more environmental reporting. And I know, you know, environmental stories I've done that have been successful, you know, getting editors to want to publish these stories usually it's best that there is kind of a political angle. So I did a story, for instance, about uh, Persian leopards in Sochi, right? This effort to save the, to reintroduce the Persian leopard to the Russian Caucasus after it kind of went, it, went extinct there. And I mean, the reason that was interesting to my editors, I did it for foreign policy, which is obviously not an environmental magazine by any stretch of the imagination. For them, what was interesting is the fact that this is part of Russia's Olympic legacy where Putin at the Olympic Games in Sochi kind of, you know, hugged a, hugged a, a little Persian leopard and kind of played with the Persian leopard for this photo shoot and kind of threw his weight behind this effort to introduce the, to reintroduce the Persian leopard. But then as part of the kind of the wider promise that Russia was going to offset the environmental cost of the Sochi Olympics, which of course was huge. I mean, I did a lot of reporting on that, like, you know, water wells poisoned, uh, landfills leaking landslides in Sochi taking out people's homes. I mean, after, after this huge kind of construction boom. So, I mean, there's a lot of problems there, but you know, Russia was promising the whole way along that they were, it was going to compensate these, the, the Imurantinskaya wetlands was filled in to build these stadiums. I mean, but Russia was promising all along it would compensate for these environmental losses. And part of that was, uh, this kind of Persian leopard program became part of that initiative. But as with many of the promises, that Russia made regarding the Olympic kind of cleanup, if you if you will, were eventually not 
fulfilled to the kind of fullest meaning. And in the case of the Persian leopards, uh, basically, you know, part of the Olympic legacy was also these ski resorts that they, you know, they built the ski resorts for the Olympics. And now they are, now it's part of kind of a, a fledgling ski resort industry in Sochi. And those ski resorts happen to, one of them is expanding into this valley, which is a, a migration highway as the, as kind of, uh, you know, experts would say for the Persian leopards who need to be able to migrate further south to mate with other populations of per Persian leopards down there. Now they're not going to be able to is the worry as the ski resort expands into this valley. And of course, the ski resort is owned by, is owned by uh, Patanin, one, one of Russia, Russia's uh, richest men. So, you know, it was it became a story about Russia's complicated Olympic legacy vis-a-vis -vis Putin, vis-a-vis -vis the oligarchs. And that was kind of what made the story interesting. So I, I think a lot of journalists um, are pressured to kind of, it, it would be harder to do an environmental story without that kind of nice political angle to it from Russia. It would be harder to get interest from editors. As for, as And as far as the Russian press, I mean, like I've said, there's been a complete sea change. There's been a sea change in how uh, the issue of climate change is covered in Russia in the past couple of months. As soon as Russia, and even a little bit before that, but as soon as Russia ratified the Paris Accord, suddenly it was like a switch had been flipped and you were seeing climate change mentioned on state television. You were seeing, you know, Komsomolskaya Pravda write about, uh, you know, not just write about, oh, the flooding in Irkutsk or whatever, but but even sometimes mentioning climate change in the same sentence and so on and so forth. So it there's been a kind of a deluge compared to what there was before, which was just a trickle of environmental reporting in Russia. Of course, a lot of it is still pretty tendentious. I mean, it's hard to do good environmental reporting if you still can't openly discuss the fact that climate change is definitely man-made and is definitely tied to oil and gas extraction. It's still a bit fraught, but at least climate change now exists in the Russian media, and it almost didn't before. That's my interview with Alec Loon, a freelance journalist in Moscow who's written for a whole lot of very prestigious newspapers and publications. You can follow his work by following him on Twitter at A-S-L-U-H-N. That's his Twitter call sign. His currently pinned tweet shows a group of reindeer herders in Yamal, so you can look forward to that. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider visiting patreon.com slash kevinrothrock I spent a lot of time on this at the top of the show, so I won't waste any more now on, on going all over it again. Thank you to everybody already pitching in and for putting up with how long it's taken me to get these damn coasters in the mail. I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter, email, however you want to do it. If ever you have a comment or a question about the show, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time. Дайте, что ли, карты в руки погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.